Edwin Frondozo on the Business Leadership Podcast every week for a unique program featuring insights and actionable items from the world's most successful business leaders. Hear firsthand the exclusive interviews and personal journeys on how today's transformational leaders made it to the top. Hey, everybody, it's me, it's Edwin, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Business Leadership Podcast. On this episode, I was able to catch up with Chris Zachariash, the founder and CEO of ImageX at the FITC conference here in Toronto. At ImageX, he's focusing on building the graphics card of the internet with his real-time image processing service that enables businesses of all sizes to deliver rich visual content with high performance and easy setup. I was super excited to sit down with Chris to learn about his experience working at YouTube. You see, he was responsible for creating YouTube's HTML5 video player, the first version of what today's player is. I enjoyed hearing about his current leadership style, what he learned from being a developer who was basically tenant of, of being an entrepreneur, but he jumped into Y Combinator, and with his lack of business skills and understanding, he is now fully embracing the challenge of growing and leading his organization. Before we get started, a quick thank you to my media sponsors, IT World Canada, for the support of the podcast. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the on the Business Leadership Podcast. I'm really grateful for your time today. But before we get started, Chris, for the benefit of the listeners who may not know you, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe maybe what you like to do? Sure. Um, so uh, I grew up not far from Toronto, actually. I grew up outside of uh, or in Rochester, New York, across the lake, um, where I, at a young age, developed a passion for computer graphics. And that led me into basically learning all about how to build and design different computer graphics systems. And to fund that at a young age, I became a web developer. And that took me through school and eventually landed me on the West Coast, where I did join YouTube as the second full-time web developer. And then after several years at YouTube, I decided that I really wanted to go off on my own. So I started a company called ImageX, uh, which I'm the CEO and founder of today. Can you maybe share with us what your company does and the current mission that you're going through right now? Sure. So what we provide is we provide real-time, on-demand image processing for businesses who care about performance and quality uh, of their visual media content. So what does that actually mean? Well, uh, when someone takes a photo with their iPhone... That photo is actually more like a billboard-sized photo. Like You could print it out, put it on a billboard, just like Apple does now around all these different cities. Uh, for us, we provide technology that enables businesses to take those gigantic photos and turn them into whatever they need to in order to deliver them down the wire to different mobile devices, websites, applications, whatever they might need it for. Uh, so that's fundamentally what we do. We process images on demand to deliver them to mobile devices and computers. Speaking to everyday use, if if I'm on a website, say um, Flickr, is, yeah, is, is that something that you would be helping Flickr with? Whether or not you work with Flickr, but sure. that's something that you help them process those images because those images, if you download the biggest size, I know it could take forever. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the fundamental problem. The problem is these images are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, they need to be transformed to, to be delivered in the ways that they are intended to be delivered. Uh, we don't work with Flickr per se, but companies like Flickr are definitely companies we work with. And the reason we work with them, and in particular companies that don't necessarily have the engineering resources that a Flickr has, 
is because this problem really matters now. Like performance, quality, these things really matter because all of these devices are getting closer and closer to our eyes and we are getting more and more fickle as we go. So if you're an e-commerce website, you have to have your e-commerce site on your phone and be able to deliver that visual experience as fast as possible. Otherwise, your customers just leave you and go to your competitor, right? So for us, it's important for us to be able to help those customers deliver those images as fast as possible in the different shapes and sizes and variations that they need uh, as quickly as possible. And you can no longer predict what that's going to mean or be like uh, for the end user. So we have to be able to do that kind of work for our customers on demand. So I want to take you, which is really interesting to me, I want to take you back to your time at YouTube. You were the lead front engineer working on the YouTube HTML5 layer. And for yep. those who don't know, that that's that was probably the early version, if not the, the same framework that we're using today. Uh, I'm curious to know, I mean, obviously not me being an engineer, how cool it is to work on a project like that. But how did it help you form your current leadership style when it comes to development uh, and with your development team? Sure. So, um, yeah, that project was super fun to work on, uh, just right out of the gate. It was super fun to work on. Um, in terms of like how it, it helped shape my leadership style and all of that, um, you know, the thing about that project was that it kind of spontaneously happened. It happened, uh, while I was going snowboarding with a couple of my fellow engineers and the head of the player team at YouTube. And while we were in the car driving up to Lake Tahoe, uh, we were kind of just kind of arguing about how far video technology had come with regards to the web. Like, were the components there yet to actually build a player that didn't use Flash, right? And we kind of came to the conclusion, like, yeah, we're, we, can, we think we can do this right now. So I set to work working on it. Like, we didn't have many engineers who could devote time to working on it. So myself and uh, a back-end engineer, Kevin Carl, jumped on the project and tried to build a prototype. Uh, and it worked and it was super exciting. And YouTube gave us this tremendous latitude to be able to do whatever we needed to do to get that done, just to see if it would work. And that is something that I've tried to impart into our company. Uh, we want to be able to take an idea like that. And when it feels like it might be the right time, or maybe just, just before the right time, um, start looking at it and start actually trying it, you know, like, let's see if this could work. And now it's the primary way that people view YouTube. So it was a pretty exciting project. And correct me if I'm wrong, was this a side project to build the prototype uh, along with your current role there? Yeah, I mean, so we at Google, you have what they call, or they, I don't know if they still have it, but we had 20% time where you could invest your time like one day a week effectively into what you thought would be interesting or compelling for the company. And so that became my 20% project. I mean, we did not hash out the details in the car. We weren't able to program it up that quickly. But what we were able to do is sort of acknowledge that the technology was there about to be there and we went back to our desks that after that weekend you know sore from snowboarding and we um you know started putting putting the pedal to the metal on that trying to figure out okay like where is the spec right now you know like is the spec is the html5 video spec where we needed to be how can we start changing that you know um it, it was just like the most interesting project to work on and at youtube especially in my role at the time we'd had a number of, of projects that had benefited the website pretty significantly. So cutting page weight, you know, working on, um, you know, the header areas, things like that, really cutting down, deprecating support for IE6, which is something we did kind of, you know, very quickly. These projects had opened up a lot of uh, 
credibility that I was able to, to leverage into spending a lot more time on the HTML5 video player, which we then were able to actually release at the first Google I.O. And that was like a big sort of step forward for the company at the time in terms of how we approached video. It changed the way we kind of worked with video. Uh, YouTube was built on Flash. In fact, you know, much of the stuff that we worked on in the Flash side, which was not my area, came out of the Flash, the FITC conference. Like the Flash video launched at FITC 2005. Adobe bought Macromedia a week later. And that's what really created the initial kickoff point for what would become ultimately YouTube is Flash video. Um, and so kind of making sure that we respected everything we learned along the way from Flash video players and then trying to port that into what was sort of this forthcoming HTML5 video spec. That was a really fun opportunity there. Um, and they gave us a lot of latitude to work on it. I mean, that's awesome how Google... I did read about that, having a, that 20% time for special projects, interest projects that, that will benefit the company. And you mentioned that you're also bringing that into your company or you're also doing that in terms of that. Is it something that you consciously push onto your team or, or looking for special projects? Like how do you brainstorm or to, to get into these? Do you take the whole team snowboarding? Or? <laughs> I mean, hopefully soon we'll be doing more of those kinds of, those kinds of outings. Um, I think in general, it's a, it's a cultural attitude around understanding, you know, paying a lot of attention to what's happening out there in the world. Like it's really easy to kind of get focused on what you're doing uh, and to get, you know, you spend a lot of time working on what you're building. Uh, sometimes if you get two heads down, you don't see what's coming next. And so we spend a lot of time, you know, just kind of spitballing, brainstorming, figuring out like, is this really what we want to be doing right now? Like, is this particular direction we're going, this wind we're kind of setting sail against, is this going to change? What would that look like if it changed? What would happen? We ask a lot of questions. I think that's something that YouTube imparted in me and then I brought into the company. And then that, you know, it's easy then once you kind of have that muscle developed when you go on a trip with your team or you go on an outing, these conversations just spontaneously happen. Now, are there any projects that came from that uh, since the inception of the business? Or I mean, I would argue that the entire infrastructure that we have today, which has radically shifted over the last you know five years, came out of a lot of those conversations. So the ways that we assemble our, our imaging pipeline came out is very unique. Um, we rely on languages that a lot of companies don't rely on. For instance, we use Lua as a primary programming language for our technology stack. And that's because we really want to be able to embed, you know, flexibility wherever we want to go, whether it's a high performance web app or a, you know, a, a really hardcore image processing framework. Uh, we use Lua to kind of glue it all together. And, and that came out of this, you know, Lua is historically known for being used in video games. And so, you know, talking to my co-founder, talking to our en lead engineers, they're like, Hey, we really like this language. It's really easy to embed. You know, can we try it out? Can we, can we put this into stuff? Like, yeah, let's try it. I mean, we're a computer graphics company ultimately. So, you know, borrowing and, you know, reaching in and pulling out DNA from other industries is something that we want to continue to do. And that was a great opportunity to do something like that. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're pulling the best in practices that are, may not traditionally be for the web per se. Exactly. But ultimately, it sounds like. You had a business problem, and you're not going to be tied down to the technology stacks that uh, traditional web companies are going to do. Well, the, the big thing that we, we are focused on is we want to build the graphics card of the internet. Um, and so what that involves means we, we have to be able to look into other industries. Like, what does computer graphics mean 
for desktop computing, right? Like we want to borrow metaphors. We want to borrow ideas from that world uh, and then adapt them into the web world. I mean, the web world has been around since the 90s. There's a lot of, you know, really good ideas and there's a lot of really old ideas. And so we kind of got to take a critical look at what the old ideas are, how to get rid of them if we need to, how to, you know, elevate them to where they need to be today. Um, and like, where can we look to other industries for guidance on that? And that's how we basically think about things. I just want to bring back yeah. uh, sort of your, uh, your elevator pitch in terms of building the graphics card of the internet. I was, I heard you say that in another podcast, another interview, mm-hmm. and I'm really interested to know from your experience in YouTube, you come from a background of making things as lean as possible, as fast yep. as possible. Yep. You said you worked on the headers, you worked on... Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so this stuff to me is super interesting because you're, you're, you're telling the future right now. So, so what, what does that mean right now, graphics card of the future? Yeah, I mean, I think if you take a look, there's, there's sort of three key truths that I like to kind of fixate on when I'm talking about this, right? The first is that, you know, visual media is moving closer and closer to our eyes and getting increasingly personal. You know, if you think about like sort of in the 1920s, we had movie theater screens kind of emerging. 1950s, you have television screens emerging. You know, it's moving closer to you. Then you have desktop computers emerging in the 80s. Uh, in the 2000, 1990s, 2000s era, you have laptop computers. They're, your screen is in your lap. Then you have mobile and it's in your hand. Now you have VR. It's literally in your eyes, right? And as those experiences move closer and closer to our eyes, they become more and more personal. And that's accelerating visual media and increasing the value of visual media. The second aspect of that is that the web happens to be the best conduit for visual media. It now dom- like visual media dominates the web. Over 80% of the traffic on the web is d- devoted to visual media, right? So, you know, these two things are creating these explosive challenges that we got to confront. And one of the reasons we have to confront them and why it's so hard is that the web was never designed to do this, you know? The image tag barely made it in to the spec because at the time the authors didn't they they felt that we should not add the image tag to the html specification because there's a risk that we won't be able to control image content in the future that the whole internet would become full of porn right and illegal content Um, but they decided to move forward with it anyway and you know that was a big risk at the time there's a big debate going on uh, and that basically led to the image tag going into the HTML spec, which led to the internet we know today. And you can notice that they didn't really afford any other media types at the time. There was no audio tag. There was no video tag. It was all relegated to plugins, right? So Flash emerged at that moment in time. It was like the sort of the de facto plugin to do visual media. It kind of patched in all that visual media that we needed. Uh, we kind of have to rethink that. You know, Flash died. Uh, Apple basically killed it. Uh, so how do we actually rethink a lot of that stuff? And to me, that is building the graphics card of the internet because we need to start with the infrastructure and work our way forward um, into the browsers, into the you know ways we work with visual media because I think we need to accept the reality that the web is now visual, 100%. There's no, really, there's no reason going forward that we need, you know, the historical web was designed based on print media metaphors. It was documents, pages, all this stuff. When you start talking about VR worlds, that's going to be the future. We need to start moving in that direction. What really fascinates me, um, and I want to bring it back to you and where you are, is how some of today's business leaders had to make changes to transform who you are today. So what would you say is the biggest turning point in your career? 
I mean, I think the biggest turning point in my career actually comes down to Y Combinator Demo Day. I went through Y Combinator as a solo founder at the time. I, I called myself pre-co-founder, which is a, you know, a way of framing what I was thinking at the time, right? And I specifically remember bicycling over from my apartment to Y Combinator and think on demo day and thinking like, okay, I can make a decision. I can take a left and head to Mexico and just never come back. Or I can head right and go in and stare down 600 investors. And I think that was kind of a meaningful moment because I just realized I had a choice and that I was actively choosing to go down this path. It wasn't just sort of like up until that point, a lot of it was just seemed like serendipity. I got accepted in. I had friends making, you know, introducing me to new customers, all these things just kind of happening spontaneously around me. And I was making the conscious choice to move forward as a business person. Uh, and that was a unique feeling for me. Like I had to change myself in many different dimensions to become more of a business person as opposed to just an engineer. You were reluctant to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And primarily because you spent time learning technology, you're a tech guy, you're a geek yeah. guy, and business was in left field. So yep. now, now that you have been an entrepreneur for, for a number of years, can you tell me how, how you've grown as, as a business leader and what are the, some of the challenges that you're currently going through? Sure. So, I mean, I think the reason I was, I know the reason I was most reluctant at the time was that engineering has a lot of hard skills. You know, I practiced those skills for the majority of my life and, you know, they always had a definite outcome. So you could create like, you know, you create a system, you launch it, you deploy it, you scale it pretty easy to measure it, right? Business was much more soft skill focused. And so it was things like negotiating or selling somebody, something, you know, selling an idea or selling someone on joining your company. These kinds of things seemed a little bit harder to measure your success on. And I, that kind of intimidated me at the beginning. But ever since, like, I've realized that those things are very powerful tools and that there are ways of measuring it. And there are ways of kind of advancing yourself and learning from other people uh, and kind of becoming dynamic in those regards. And that, that led me down the path of business, which is now, to me, like the most exciting part of my job. Uh, engineering, although I still like to you know, dive into some code every now and then on the weekend, it's really more about figuring out business and how to move the business forward. From the perspective of challenges that we face right now, I guess my biggest challenge is sort of understanding where to spend our time. You know, I think as a business person, you have access to a certain limit, limited set of resources, right? Uh, and you need to be able to wield those resources in the highest leverage ways possible. So understanding where you're spending your time, and time is the most valuable resource, you have to figure out what to spend your time on, what, why you're spending time on that, and what does that actually get you? And where does that, what doors does that open up down the road? And so to me, that is the biggest challenge, is constantly taking inventory of where we're spending our time. So is this challenge in, and I've heard this as well from other business leaders, is do you find this challenge is personal to yourself, um, your executive team, or, or even throughout the company? Is this something that you're actively thinking about on, on, on every level? Yeah, increasingly so, I would say. I would say that, you know, the, the challenge of focus, basically, what are we focused on, is a difficult one because you become partial to what you're working on. You become you know, invested in seeing through certain things that may not be the best use of time and, you know, or, you know, you may not know at any moment in time what the best path forward is. So you have to push forward on one of them and hope for the best. And that analysis does take a lot of time in itself. And so you have to be very careful about identifying very quickly, making decisions very quickly, 
what you're going to work on, why you're going to work on it, and what you're going to deliver from it, and be ready to change course and do so ruthlessly. You know, make sure that you, if you're working on a project that's not going to advance you in the ways that you had hoped, you need to kill that project immediately and like let everyone know. And hopefully there's no hard feelings, but that it is a zero sum game when you're dealing with time. You only have so much of it. Touch upon why, why Combinator. So why Combinator for those who are listening is one of the largest accelerators and you could probably tell much more than I can going through the program. And you mentioned that you learned how to think like a founder there. And aside from the folks that uh, you you recently mentioned from your alma mater, yeah, who are your biggest influencers outside of there when it comes to business leadership? Sure. So, you know, I've, I've been using this phrase that I kind of like to describe Y Combinator, which is it's the warp zone for founders, right? Like you go, you come in and you're like this raw material, you know, and you're kind of level one and they spit you out at level four, right? In 10 weeks. And a big part of that is sort of helping you focus and, and helping you understand sort of the pragmatism of business. There's a lot of things that I at early days worried about that just didn't matter to the wider business. And they tell you that. And they tell you that very bluntly, like this doesn't matter, right? Like you are focused, you know, getting your formation documents in place, that kind of matters for sure. But, you know, you hand that off to a lawyer. You shouldn't be the one sitting there going through every single line and obsessing about it get a good lawyer first, have them do it. And they'll tell you what you need to look at that kind of stuff. Right. Like, you know, as an engineer, I thought I could do most things myself because whenever you're doing programming, you just dive in, you learn, you work on it, uh, and then you deliver some kind of outcome. Right. But there are far better people in business to do. You you should be delegating as a founder, uh, especially early days. And so they really hammer that kind of thinking into your brain. Again, focus on time. You have 10 weeks to go from, in my case, nothing to something and then present to all these investors and try to convince them that you're going to change the world, right? That's a lot. You don't have a lot of time and you can only work so many days or so many hours in a day, no matter what people think. Even if you worked 24 hours a day for those 10 weeks, you still, it would, there's an insurmountable amount of work to do beyond that. And so figuring out how to focus, figuring out how to deliver and then figuring out how to delegate were all big things that Y Combinator taught me. Um, there's a second part to that question. Yeah, I mean, second part was like, who who are who your are biggest in, who are your biggest influencers? I know, sure. I know, you mentioned some of some of the folks that you that part of your alma mater. Yeah. So, our, I mean, so the reason I mentioned folks from my alma mater is that RIT, the the group that I came out of, produced a lot of really strong business people. Um, you know, in particular, Jake Lodwick from from Vimeo uh, has been an instrument. He's one of our early investors. Somebody that I spent a lot of time just picking his brain. Um, beyond sort of my RIT, you know, alma mater, I would say that Eric Wiesen from Bullpen Capital, who's one of our uh, investors, he was an investor from a different firm at the time from RRE. Um, he has been somebody I talk to almost every day about sort of business positioning, understanding our market, understanding how venture capitalists think, um, how other business leaders think. He's been incredibly influential and formative in my career. And then Shanna Fisher, who is, uh, uh, who leads the third kind venture capital out of New York. Um, she's always pushing me, um, always, always, always pushing me in directions that she, she can identify the weak muscle very quickly and poke at it pretty aggressively and then get you to strengthen it up really fast. So in terms of guidance, those two people have been invaluable to us. 
As as ImageX grows and scales, I understand you're looking you're looking to grow right now. You, yes, you're looking to be at least forty headcount by yep. end of the year, and, and and with that, I I assume as a leader, your role and your respons your responsibilities are changing day by day. Can you share how you overcome the challenges of leading a company that's looking to grow? Sure. I mean, I think my role is going to change a lot as we continue to grow. I'm already feeling it happen right now. We're, we've kind of crossed a threshold now where I can't sort of sit down and take everybody through sort of the vision stuff. Like I have to communicate it more broadly and help them understand where we're going and, and why we're going there in broader terms. Um, I can't take everybody to lunch every week anymore. Uh, there's just too many people. And so that is changing how I focus on the company. Like my job now is primarily around vision and, and selling the, the wider vision to not only investors and customers, but also internally, you know, helping people understand why they work at ImageX, you know, what they're going to get out of working at ImageX, you know, what, why we make decisions the way we make them. All these kinds of things, you know, have to happen at a broader level. And to me, that's very exciting. I get a lot, I, I find a lot of enjoyment in doing that. But yeah, as we continue to grow, this will continue to change. And I, was, I can see now what it will probably look like when we get to be 100, 500, whatever number of people. And it's a pretty exciting trajectory to be on. Um, it does mean I get further and further away from the minute details of the underlying service. Um, and so trying to make sure that I communicate how things that are happening at the lower level should behave sort of from a high level is, is something I pay a lot of attention to. As you grow further and further from the minute details you mentioned, and being an engineering in, in the back, do you want to sometimes sit beside your programmers still? The programmers, not so much. I think um, there's, a, there's definitely a muscle there that I do enjoy exercising, so to speak. Like I like building systems. I miss the ability to just have like being able to say something's done. Like I said earlier, soft skills, things are never really done. You're always kind of selling. You're always kind of advancing a cause. Um, the hard skills of like launching a, a service it's just done at some point you go home and you go to bed and you don't think about, I mean, you think about it voluntarily, but you don't have to think about it. Um, I mean, I think the people that I, I tend to want to sit down more with right now that I have to kind of let figure things out themselves tends to be more on the sales side. Uh, and the reason for that is that I've discovered that sales in many ways can also be engineered or operated, right? Like, and it's a different set of concerns for sure, but you know, you can generate reports on like how effective and all this stuff is. And to me, like backing away from that, you know, has been a little bit harder because I want to pay attention to that very closely. But, you know, again, focusing your time effectively is critical. So finding the right person, the right people to come in and do that kind of work uh, for you and then letting them kind of manage it is, is the way forward. But it is tempting to kind of dive into the numbers and just be like, hey, what happened here? What happened there? It's very cool. And thank you for sharing that. I mean, I could really... Going through your career, I could see how you've grown from being that lead developer at YouTube, and now you're you're seeing the overall business as different silos or different roles. And, yeah. and, and it sounds like you jumped in in a lot of roles to really understand it, but not 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 to be overly bearing on the people you work with because you you want to understand. You're curious, right? Yeah, I mean, the best possible situation for me and the way that I've thought about it in terms of being CEO is that. I should be the first person to jump on a new job, right? And I should become the worst person at that job pretty quickly because I should find somebody better to do it for me. Uh, but along the way, I should learn about enough about that job to be able to provide my basic guidance or advice on what that job should entail and what it should look like. And it, at the same time, I also learn sort of what I should expect out of the person doing that job. Uh, so that's just a pattern that I hope continues to scale as we go get bigger. 
Um, but you know, there was a point in time we had no, you know, head of sales. And so like I was the head of sales by, you know, de facto standards. So it became my job to become that person. And I had no sales experience. So diving on that and realizing very quickly that this is where it, we need help enabled me to go find people to bring in to do that job. So, I mean, that's just the pattern that I have to keep replicating until it becomes some, until it changes and becomes something else. Real fun question, Chris. If I were to ask any of your team, what's the best leadership quality that you possess? What do you think they would say? I guess besides the uh, terrible puns in our Slack channels, um, <laughs> which they happen to love, I know. Um, I would I would definitely say that um, my ability to listen. I think uh, I listen to as many people as I possibly can listen to, and I'm always open to hearing people's thoughts and ideas. I mean, that was something that you know followed me from YouTube. It's still it's staggering to me how little friction there was in terms of being able to talk about what's interesting or what, you know, bring up ideas to higher level management at Google. It's to this day, it's still staggering. I don't understand how they were able to get to 40 to 50,000 people or whatever they are. And these ideas can still bubble up all the way to the top. And then that can translate into action in that company. And so for me, that is something that I very much value. Like I have, like I said, I have, I have limited time, but there are plenty of opportunities for people to just kind of wander up and say like, Hey, I've got, you know, this idea, what do you think about it? And I always want to have that to some, you know, in, in, in a strong capacity. I want people to feel com- comfortable uh, exposing ideas to the company and ex- bringing up ideas to me uh, and, and figuring out ways of courses of action beyond that. Uh, if we could have that, that would make me happy. So before we end, Chris, it's been great. I'm sure we could talk all day. And, sure. And, and if I took off my interview hat and really just just be the developer I was before, we could go on for days. I, I'm so curious <laughs> about what you do. So this is fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'd love to get some of your final thoughts. You know, maybe observations or any actionable items, recommendations that you can share to any future technology leaders who are looking to grow their career. Sure. Um, I think. You know, I think if you are in this industry and you, or you're in, in technology and you want to be a leader or you want to focus on business or, you know, focus on the technology even, I think it's really important to pick big ideas. Um, I think you're going to be doing this anyway. So go for the biggest ideas you can find and make sure you can pin them down to reality, right? Like we find all the time companies that just shoot for the moon and just miss, right? But you're going to do this anyway. And in many ways, if you're successful, it will be all consuming. And what they don't tell you is that it's all consuming because you choose it to be all consuming. It's not all consuming because it's forced on you. You become inspired, you become uh, invigorated by the work you're doing. So pick things that are, you'll be more successful if you go after bigger ideas. And even if they're, they seem unattainable, you know, Paul Graham from Y Combinator always says, you know, look for the ideas that are sort of like vaguely off in that direction. You know, just, off in the distance, you can't really see what they are. You don't really know what they are, but you feel like there's something out there in that direction. So go in that direction. And those are the ideas that I think are the, the, the ones that are most likely to lead to a, a strong career, a strong business, uh, because they're kind of on the fringe. And that's where the big ideas tend to be. So. No, I mean, I love that. I love I love the vision and the imagery that it, it's there. It's just over the horizon. So for everyone listening, just definitely look look for where you can't see anything is, is what Chris is saying. But to close, Chris, had a great time. Please tell Thank us you. where we can find more information about you, ImageX, and anything else you'd like to share. Sure. So, I mean, you can find us at ImageX.com. It's I-M-G-I-X.com. 
Um, and you can email me at Chris Z, Z is in zebra, at imgix.com. Um, and I'm happy to answer any questions people might have. Thanks again, Chris, for joining Thank the you. show. I will put all the links on our site. Thanks a lot, Edwin. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. That's pretty cool, right? I really loved hearing how spontaneous trips fuel ideas that eventually get implemented and change the world, change how the world views videos. I'm really excited to see Chris grow as a leader and how his company builds the next generation video card. If you're interested in learning more about Chris, I've posted all the links he mentioned on the episode page located at thebusinessleadership.com slash 012. I would love to hear from you as well, so feel free to reach out directly via email to edwin at thebusinessleadership.com. And lastly, we are currently serving our listeners to learn more about you. So please, take a few minutes and visit our website and click the survey link found on the homepage. Thank you again, and until next time, Edwin signing off. Thank you for listening to the Business Leadership Podcast at thebusinessleadership.com.